Mark, the seventh chapter, beginning with the first verse. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but rather eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Skipping to verse 14. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. Skipping again to verse 21. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this new day which we have never seen before. We praise you for the beauty of your creation. We thank you for the opportunity to assemble together to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the love and friendship that is in this place. We thank you for the calling upon all of our lives to love you with everything and to serve our neighbor with everything that we have. Lord, we lift to you now all the burdens of our hearts. We pray especially for those in the path of Hurricane Ida. We pray that you might lessen the power and the impact of that storm and that you would protect lives and property. Bless all who are down there now. Bless all who are volunteering in the days to come. We ask that you would be with the people of Afghanistan. We pray that all who need to leave may have that opportunity to be able to do so, that you would use our nation in that effort. And Lord, we pray that you may bring justice to that land, righteousness and peace to the Afghan population. We pray especially for their girls and their women. Lord, as your word goes forth now, as always, we pray that it might be a word of challenge and conviction, a word of liberation, healing, hope, and transformation. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
My sermon text for this morning is the gospel lesson. It is somewhat choppy. It is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 14 through 15, and lastly, 21 through 23. My sermon title for this morning is The Heart of the Matter. The Heart of the Matter. We find ourselves once again back in Mark's gospel after a several weeks sojourn through not only John, but specifically John chapter 6. Mark is believed to be the earliest written of the four gospels sometime in the late 80s-60s by one John Mark, a cousin of Barnabas, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul's, as a summary of Peter's preaching while both of them were at Rome. Mark portrays Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, who is almost constantly active in his ministry, most of which is as a powerful exorcist, healer, and miracle worker. The text we have before us this morning often falls under the heading, The Traditions of the Elders, and encapsulates Jesus' brewing controversy with the religious leaders of his day, normally referred to as the Pharisees, Sadducees, Scribes, and Elders. Should you be interested, there is a parallel text, meaning another account of this same episode by another author, uh, namely Matthew, in the 15th chapter of his gospel, verses 1 through 20. They are largely the same accounts <clears throat> in this instance, the only variance being some additional animosity towards the Pharisees by Jesus in Matthew's account. There is a brewing controversy in Jesus' life and ministry with those who would shortly become his only real enemies. Intriguingly enough, the religious leaders and authorities of his day. And the controversy surrounds <clears throat> understandings and interpretations of God's law as found in Scripture, specifically what we Christians now call the Old Testament. Jesus, you may recall, seemed to play footloose and fancy-free with the laws of God as handed down from God to Moses and the people of Israel generations earlier. Jesus certainly had his own take on things. Oftentimes he seems to heighten the law to absurd, preposterous levels, and at other times he seems to discard it or ignore it entirely. Most often, however, it is a matter of emphasis, priority, and interpretation. Jesus caused contention, you may remember, by healing or curing people on the Sabbath day, an act of love in itself, but one which violated God's prohibition of work on that one day of the week, as understood by most of his own people, the Jewish people. Jesus further invited opposition by accepting and receiving and even dining with, quote-unquote, sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, ones whom the law deemed unclean and therefore outcast by their dubious behaviors. Here today, the issue begins with ritual purity, that is the washing and cleansing of hands and vessels, before progressing towards food itself, which actually occurs in the left out, verses 17 through 19. And the issue is, which things are deemed clean and therefore allowed, versus unclean and therefore prohibited, most of which can be found back in the book of Leviticus. Jesus, at first blush, appears to be lax about these particular rules and rituals as he dispenses with the ceremonial washing of hands and vessels along with the dietary prohibitions of Torah, the laws of Moses. So to be fair to the Pharisees and the scribes here, they are not simply making this stuff up from scratch, out of thin air or left field. 
No, rather they could cite you chapter and verse, as it were, from Leviticus and parts of Deuteronomy to back their claims. Here again, it undoubtedly comes down to a matter of emphasis, what legal scholars may term original intent, and what many of us commonly understand as the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. You can tell from the text itself that the Pharisees, scribes, and people's particular understanding and interpretations of these laws has stood the test of time and actually dates back generations as both verses 3 and 5 refer to them as the tradition of the elders. You can just as easily detect Jesus' frustration and impatience with what he considers their deviation from the original intent of that law. When he says in verse number 8, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. And in verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And in verse 13, which we did not read, thus making void the word of God through your tradition which you have handed on. Jesus' initial charge against them is that of hypocrisy. As he quotes from the prophet Isaiah Chapter 29, verse 13, in case you're interested. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Herein Jesus is contrasting the word of God or the commandment of God, which he holds paramount with human tradition, which at least here he seems to denigrate. It begs the question then, what human traditions do you and I hold steadfast and reverently, which at best obscure the word of God, or at worst contradict it? That's a biting indictment, isn't it? I don't know about you, my friends, but that always arrests me. The contemporary English version translates here, all of you praise me with your words but you never really think about me. While the message remix version records, these people make a big show of saying the right things, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they are worshiping me, but they don't really mean it. They just use me as a cover. I doubt any among us today are so holy and pious as to have these words not prick our conscience. Jesus more specifically explicates his case in verses 14 and 15 by laying out the general principle he is applying here. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. The disciples in Mark are often portrayed as obtuse, thick-headed, not quite getting it, which I submit to you is good news for us. And so Jesus further explains his rationale in the remaining verses of 17 through 23, part of which is omitted again from our reading today. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart but the stomach and so it goes out the bowels? Thus he declared all foods clean. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, 
avarice, that is financial or monetary greed, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, that is sexually lewd or lustful behavior, envy, slander, pride, and folly, that is foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. If all of us are honest with ourselves, I think much of this list hits far closer to home than perhaps we'd like to admit. The rather obvious move Jesus is making here is very appealing and commonsensical at the same time that it is unnerving and frightening. He's essentially moving from outer to inner, from actions and rituals to thoughts and intentions, from what can be seen and detected to what is less obvious. Contrary to our human proclivity to put the cart before the horse, Jesus is trying to reinstate the primacy of the horse. I purchased a plaque years ago, which hangs in my home office and reads simply, Thoughts become words. Words become actions. Actions become character. Character is everything. Thoughts become words, words become actions, actions become character, character is everything. Jesus seems to be saying something similar here and in many other places of Scripture, that character is everything and that your character is based on your actions, but it doesn't stop there. Your actions are based on your words and your words are based on your thoughts. To me, that is both appealing and logical and yet also unnerving and frightening. For I think most of us would agree that it is perhaps easier to regulate and tame our actions. Less so our words and even less so our thoughts. Who can effectively regulate, train, and discipline his or her own thoughts? As Jesus seems to be requesting, if not demanding, in this text. The Apostle Paul gives some practical advice on this front towards the very end of his epistle or letter to the Philippians when he counsels, Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worship worthy of praise, think about those things. I suspect all of us would agree with that sentiment and would do our best to accommodate it. But it's still much easier said than done. Much easier to attempt than actually accomplish. The problem and the solution are really one and the same in this text. There is one concept which is paramount in this text and upon which therefore everything else hangs. Verse number 6. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Verse number 19, which again was left out. Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not into the heart, but the stomach, and so passes on. Verse 21. For it is from within, from the human hearts, that evil inclinations come. The heart is a funny thing, my friends. It is both the problem and the solution. The human heart is the source of much evil. 
and also the source of much love, affection, and compassion. But who can control it? Who can regulate it? Who can direct it in the right way? Think about the occurrences of the word heart in Scripture, my friends. Do you know what the very first instance or mention of the word heart is in Scripture? Genesis chapter 6, just prior to the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Do you remember why Pharaoh refused to let the Hebrew slaves go free down in Egypt back in the book of Exodus? What was hardened? His heart. God refuses to anoint any of the tall and handsome sons of Jesse king over Israel until the last youngest ruddy complexioned little boy David comes in. Reason given? Because humankind looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks upon the heart. King David is later exalted as a man after God's own heart. The psalmist once cried out in lament and repentance, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In the Beatitudes, Jesus blesses those who are pure in heart, saying, They shall behold God. God promises His people in Ezekiel 36, A new heart I will give you. I will take out of you your heart of stone, and I will put into you a heart of flesh, so that you may be my people, and I shall be your God. And perhaps my favorite, because it is such an obscure, unknown verse, and yet so, so powerful. 1 John 3, verse 20. 1 John 3, verse 20 says, We reassure our hearts before God, because whenever our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. We reassure our hearts before God, because whenever our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. So, our hearts are not ultimate. They are penultimate. God's character of grace and mercy and forgiveness is what's ultimate. So apply that plaque for one minute, not to you, but to God. Take the words of that plaque. Do not apply them to you. Apply them to God. Faults become words. Words becomes actions. Actions become character. Character is everything. God's character is based on His actions, which are based on His words, which are based on His thoughts. And God's thoughts towards you are loving. They are merciful. They are accepting. They are embracing. And that makes all the difference in the world. That is the source of your heart's transformation. My friends, as God extends grace and mercy to you, He forgives you all of your sins because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And as His grace and mercy and forgiveness surround you and envelop you, you will find your character being transformed. Your character will be transformed because your actions are being transformed. Because your words are being transformed. Because your thoughts are being transformed. The thoughts of your heart are 
are no longer only evil continually, as Genesis says, but your heart is now being softened. Your thoughts are becoming more charitable. Your words kinder and gentler. Your actions more compassionate and just. And your character, your character is becoming holier and possessing of integrity. Even if your heart has been hardened due to your life experiences and convicts you because you know the bad stuff that is in your heart, God is greater than your heart. It's what 1 John 3 says. God knows all things. God loves you unconditionally and eternally. He forgives you not just some of your sins, not the small ones, but all of them, especially the big ones. God transforms your life and He is forming you into the image of His own Son, Jesus Christ, even as we speak at this moment. Your heart is increasingly becoming a heart of love. A heart of love for God and a heart of love for your neighbor. That's why you don't have to be concerned with Mark chapter 7 anymore. You need not worry about hand washing or vessel washing or dietary restrictions except perhaps for reasons of physical health and hygiene, but not holiness. For according to Romans 13, love is the fulfilling of the law. All the commandments of God are summed up in one sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so now go forth knowing that Jesus has given you a new heart this day, a new mind with new thoughts, a new capability, and a new capacity for love. As Paul told the Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has conceived what God has in store for those who love Him. You can't even imagine the consequences of what your new heart is about to entail and unfold. The heart of the matter. Amen.